Welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. This is another hit from the archives, and it's a discussion that has stuck in my mind for several years since this episode originally aired. On this episode, Jordan Reese, Stan Genter, and Mark Zender talk about the importance of notes. It's something that on the surface seems so simple, but notes are the building blocks of how archaeologists record information for others to learn about the past. So enjoy this archive episode and stay tuned for more new episodes of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. You've got some questions. Go dig a hole. You're feeling stressed, man. Go dig a hole. Put on your GPS and go dig a hole. I'm gonna turn some Glennis Glisten and download and listen to Tia, Katie, Chris, and Kirsten. You should go dig a hole. Welcome to the 13th episode of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Today I've got Stan Genter. Hello. And Mark Zender. Hi there. And Stan is with Fares and Afar. And Mark also works with Afar, but he's the assistant professor of anthropology at Tulane. And uh, yeah, I've worked with you guys for a few years down in Belize. And uh, today we're going to be going over some questions that one of our former students, uh, Jordan Reese, had posed to me in an email, and I think that they're really important to discuss. Uh, some of the questions are pretty thought-provoking in the types of discussions they could generate, and some of them just simply drill the importance of taking good notes in the field. So, uh, yeah, we'll go around and discuss these questions together. Uh, the first question that uh, Jordan posed to me was, how long have you been in the archaeological field? All right, well, I can go first on that. I did my first bit of archaeology in 1997 um, at Rancho San Claudio in Tabasco, Mexico. Nice. That's a good long while. That's 20 years ago, Stan. It's almost, it's, I'm coming up on, yeah, 20 years of archaeology. <laughs> I started just a little bit earlier um, in an anthropology program for my BA in the early 1990s, so 1992 and 1993, uh -huh. and I was lucky to get into cultural resource management and um, some archaeological projects in the summer and even a little bit during the, uh, during the fall seasons when you could still dig in parts of Canada. And I had the opportunity to dig at a lot of rescue archaeological projects in Queen Charlotte Islands and northern BC, parts of Alberta and parts of Ontario. Um, and then I, I went into the my area a little bit later around the same time that Stan did. Very cool. Well, uh, the other parts to this question, could you name the college you went to as well as any past experience prior to Belize and the AFAR program? I guess the, the second part past experience is a little redundant at this point, but uh, let's hear the colleges you guys went to. Well, uh, Mark and I actually met at the University of Calgary uh, back in 1996, exactly 20 years ago. Um, I was doing my undergrad there and he was doing his MA in archaeology. And so, yeah, that was my start up in Calgary. I then went on to do my MA in La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, and then finished up with my PhD at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas in 2014. Nice. Yeah, well, a 
as Stan says, we met up in 1996. Uh, prior to that, I had been um, in an undergraduate program in anthropology, four-field program um, at the University of British Columbia, so both the main campus in Vancouver and satellite campuses in the southern interior of British Columbia in Kelowna, B.C. and um, Penticton, B.C. Um, after uh, I met Stan, he, as he said, went on to Australia. Um, I stayed and did uh, finished my M.A. at at Calgary and also my PhD at the University of Calgary before moving into the States uh, to do a postdoc first at Harvard and then a lectureship at Harvard. And then uh, since 2011, I've been teaching here at Tulane um, and have been working with the AFAR program in Belize basically since then. Nice. So how long have you guys been with AFAR? I think, well, I started in 2011, which was just the same year that I moved uh, to Tulane uh, uh-huh. from uh, Boston um, and joined for the, the field uh, school uh, down at Cahapetch in Belize that same summer and then every summer since. And Stan? Well, I did not start working with Afar in Belize uh, technically until, I guess, a couple years later than, than Mark did. Um, I had been working in Guatemala with a number of different archaeological projects at the sites of El Peru Huaca, uh, La Corona, and El Mirador. So I often had a lot of conflicts of scheduling, and it, I think I've now worked, what is it, two or three years off at Cajopech. I come around um, on and off again, so yeah. it I have not been there at in the Belize area as long as Mark has, but we have worked together down there as well. So it's we connected in Canada, uh, down in the states here at all the various Afar conferences, and now working in Belize as well. So it's been uh, twenty years of collaborations between the two of us now. Yeah, it's really fun to see uh, the dynamic that you guys have in the field together because it's like you can definitely tell there's a lot of friendship there. And, you know, I mean, 20 years of friendship is a longer friendship than some of our students have been alive. Uh, (laughs) That's true. Good point. Yeah. (laughs) So it's pretty neat. Uh, Yeah. What were some of the classes or seminars and so on and so forth that you've taken that helped develop your skills around uh, archaeology? Well, uh, for myself, I have had a number of different classes, but certainly the one class that I would say was the most helpful in terms of my career was one I took my first first year at um, Southern Methodist University, which was called Science and Archaeology. And it was a class taught by a guy who looked like Hammurabi, this (laughs) South African guy with a big beard. He was, he seemed pretty gruff, but he had the driest sense of humor. So if you paid attention, you were just laughing all all the way along. But he had a wonderful class that was also the most difficult class I ever had. And in the class, he would simply, he had invented his own archeological site that was supposed to be on the coast of Texas, down around the Houston area. And every week he would give you a new data set. So he'd start off with a map of the site. And then your assignment for that first week was simply looking at the map and then in two pages, or less, you had to say everything you could say about the site. The next week, you would get a new data set, and he'd give you a few articles that would tell you a little bit about the area out there, but then you had to interpret the information in those articles in relationship to the site. And every week, you would have to augment uh, your interpretation with this new data set until finally the very last assignment of the entire course was in one page you had to summarize everything you knew about that site now after you looked at all the different data. So you'd have the 
the stratigraphy there, you'd have the ceramics that would be coming out, the various artifacts. And when you put it all together, you could actually start understanding how an archaeologist is going to have to be approaching these things and getting little bits of information, not all at the same time there. And for me, it was the best class because it was so open-ended. It wasn't one where you were simply told you need to find X. It was what can you tell me about the site that you're, you're looking at there. And that has had a definitely a great help for me in terms of how I go about approaching archaeological information at the sites that I have worked at myself. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing template for work, you know, and like you had said, you've applied it elsewhere in your career. Yep. So I, I would definitely encourage um, anyone in academic archaeology to kind of look at that kind of a, a system where you give it, I think, give the students a more open-ended approach to a lot of these issues where they are going to have to think through not only um, the answers to try to find the answers, but they're going to have to think in terms of finding the questions to address themselves. Yeah. Well, Mark, what about you? What have been some useful classes for you? I think that, you know, note-taking is one of these really, really important skills for everybody to develop. And I think like a lot of us, um, you pick up little bits and pieces and, and um, you know, tips and tricks for yourself from lots of different places. Uh-huh. Um, I was fortunate, as I said, that, um, you know, in high school, I was not a very great note-taker. Um, and uh, even in my first year of university, I was still trying to figure out what exactly to write down when a professor was talking and what to write down from readings outside of the lectures and so on. And I was really fortunate in the uh, Summerfield schools and then also the, the cultural resource, uh, resource management um, digs that I went on. Mm-hmm. And that we had to produce lots of notes. We had to turn them in um, each day. Um, and they were part of our, our, our project requirements. Um, and at first they were indifferent and not so great. And then bit by bit, I started to see what really worked best. Um, and other things fed into that. So I was taking a lot of science courses at that time, uh, particularly in the geology department um, on stratigraphy and sedimentology, um, historical geology, and so on. And all of those had lab components that also stressed a lot of lab work and note-taking. Yeah. And so that fed into the stuff that I was doing in archaeology at that same time. So I'm sure that what, it, what ended up becoming the way that I take notes is a mix of all of those different kinds of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, obviously it's critical to those things. And ever since I, I you know, those couple of years there in my second and third year of, of university and my undergraduate, um, I've, I've taken pretty detailed notes from pretty much anything. You know, Stan is the same. I've noticed, you know, we'll, we'll be at a conference and be among some of the few people that are taking notes during every presentation. And it seems like this sort of a graduation out of being a student into being a professional where people stop doing that. But I've never really stopped um, doing that. And I've noticed that Stan hasn't hasn't either. I think note taking becomes something that's that remains really, really important. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like I had similar experiences to both of you uh, for really meaningful courses that I took. Uh, one of them was actually a, uh, it was like, I, I took a ton of geology courses, but, uh, the first one intro to physical geology, um, my professor really drilled the importance of taking good notes and by good notes, he had like very strict standards on how they would be organized. And there was definitely a method to it. And so you'd go through that. And then one of the things that I took away from that, you know, and I've carried along with me, you know, every single paper, every single conference, every single time I go into the field, it's, he had this saying, it was like, anything you can say, you should be able to say with a diagram. And 
a well-constructed diagram can say as much as, you know, like a 20 page paper. Um, and so, you know, he, he taught a lot of skills on that too, which is like drawing good diagrams and, you know, good labeling and stuff like that. So, you know, definitely good note taking. And then like later on, uh, in my, you know, I guess archeological career, I joined up with Bivar and Afar and they have a very standardized method of taking notes. It's very well organized. And so I felt like I I slid right into that very easily since I had already been doing that as an undergrad. Yeah. I think one of the important things is good note taking necessitates thinking in an organized manner. And so as you learn good note taking abilities, it's first going to require you to start thinking in a certain way that is going to imprint upon how you listen and interact with whatever kind of data sets you're looking at, you're automatically going to start trying to organize things in a way that would work out well in terms of taking that down as notes. And that is, I think, one of the most important ways that we have of actually getting some sense of what's often a very chaotic data set there. Yeah. So once you once you can start thinking correctly, you can start um, putting that down as proper notes. Yeah. And I mean, there's nothing more maddening in the field than really bad notes i mean <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> when, yeah. when yeah. we're going through and you know trying to build upon somebody else's research and build upon somebody else's data it's very very important to be able to look at their notes or you know look at their publications and very quickly understand okay here's where i'm digging they also dug here this is what they found. This is what I expect to find. If if you can't do that, then it's just so frustrating. It's like starting from square one and really doubling up your efforts. Yeah, you realize really early on, particularly if you get interested in the history of our field or working on the history of excavations at a site, the difference between people that have taken good notes at a site in the past and give you a good indication of everything they did, mm-hmm. the reasons why they did certain things, and it stands out you know, night and day between the people that are were good at taking notes and, and comfortable with it um, compared to people that don't. Yeah, I've always figured it's important to recognize that the notes you're taking you should always always keep in mind that they should be accessible to people who are going to be living not only, say, 20, 30 years in the future, but generations down the line where someone is not going to be able to interrogate you as to what you actually meant by those sentences. You need to write very clearly. Yeah. And the good thing for me is I have such a bad memory that I have to do that just for myself. So it, it works out when you have to actually recognize that. Oftentimes, even for ourselves, in a few years, you're not going to remember exactly which field season that was, let alone what day you were working out there. And whatever you wrote on down is going to have to be clear enough that anyone coming along at a much later point in time is going to be able to figure out exactly what you were talking about and what you meant. So clarity is, of course, absolutely golden in archaeology. Nice. Well, uh, that kind of leads us into the next question, and I feel like we've we've already answered a good bit of it, uh, which is, what literary skills do you feel are necessary in the field? So we've already really touched on the importance of clear, concise, and well-organized communication. Are there any other skills that you think are, are necessary in the field? I think one would be you need to familiarize yourself with um, articles, because ultimately that is what you were going to be writing. You're not simply wanting to write out a report of what you found. You, of course, as an academic, as a scientist, you are wanting to get some information. You want to address certain questions. And 
you need to be able to write in a way that is going to be able to present your argument in the best light possible. And this is one of the things that I think honestly comes just from trial and error. You need to familiarize yourself with how academic articles are written and with that view towards clarity, not only to the general public, public but to your, your colleagues as well. So I think in terms of our literary skills, we've talked so far about writing, but I think reading as well is very important. You need to have that kind of background in how to write, but also to be able to familiarize yourself with the other people and other articles and chapters that have addressed similar questions in the past so that you can actually have a good amount of proper citations for whatever you are talking about in your future articles. Yeah. And it definitely helps guide things in the field too, to know what you're building upon and, you know, to have like a, a guided research design as you're working in the field. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. The, the, the writing and reading are absolutely and utterly intertwined. We all know the people that, that read a lot have a much greater command of vocabulary. It also gives you the ability to parse an argument. The more you read, the more you're able to, to penetrate sort of to the core of what somebody intends. And that forces you to focus on, on these key points in your own note-taking, for instance, not just when you're trying to scribble hurriedly as somebody's lecturing or as you're listening to a talk, yeah. but also in getting down your own thoughts quickly as you're you know, maneuvering around actually excavating, actually being responsible for an excavation, and quickly taking notes that nonetheless are still interpretable that later on that evening you can build up into something that's a little bit you know more accessible even to you as Stan was saying yeah. you know, 10 years down the line absolutely and uh, we're joined now by Jordan Reese uh, at University of Central Florida uh, now we're on to um, another question and these are getting more into uh, conferences and, and note-taking so the first question has Maya at the Lago or other seminars from the AFAR program benefited you and furthered any of your knowledge? Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, these conferences are, are particularly good. I mean, any, any conference and any seminars is a good chance to network with colleagues and share ideas outside of just the, the kind of you know, performative aspects of your own talks. Um, but one of the things that makes these conferences particularly good um, is the length of the individual um, paper. People have, you know, a, a good solid hour to present their work. Um, there's plenty of opportunities um, for discussing both pre and post, lots of time for questions and answers, and just lots of great social events, you know, surrounding these particular um, conferences and seminars um, that make it, you know, possible for people to really just relax around each other and really, um, really share the results of their field work, ask the kinds of questions you wouldn't have an opportunity to ask otherwise. And I would just have to completely agree with, with Mark on that. It's the relaxed nature of the conference as well as the, the length of, of the individual presentations out there, which means that you and as well, we've had the ability to bring in people from all over. Um, and so you end up getting, if you come to a number of these conferences, you end up getting a lot of the archaeologists who are primarily responsible for some of the most recent discoveries. And so anyone can come on out to this. And the, the nice thing is we have such a wide range of, of different kinds of presenters out there. And I know I'm pretty certain Mark would agree that a lot of our ideas, in fact, can get sparked by discussions just from the, the conference themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. And uh, Jordan, what's been your experience with uh, Maya at the Lago and uh, all that? 
Well, I've been going to Maya Lago, I believe, for the past three years since I've attended Davidson Day. And in all honesty, I feel like without the class, I wouldn't have known anything. And when I like first attended the classes, they were really intriguing. And I feel like I gained a lot of insight that I wouldn't have learned just by watching and sort of observing things in this field. Instead, I was able to gain a lot more insight and a lot of more detailed methods through Maya Delago. And I was also able to learn about other little things that didn't necessarily go with Belize, but they were very intriguing. And I was able to kind of tie the presenters and their information together and kind of put it in which I could be really successful in the archaeology field. Nice. Yeah. One thing I, would, uh, I think probably is good for anyone listening to this who doesn't actually know about the conferences, especially Maya Lago, is that it takes place at um, the Davidson Day School. And a lot of us presenters will actually, when we're not presenting in the, the main auditorium, we'll actually head on upstairs to some of the classrooms and talk to some of the students who are going to be coming down to Belize or who are perhaps just interested in that. And that gives the students a one on with some one on one time with the archaeologists and you can have far more focused discussions with the students so that they will have a better knowledge of what to expect when they get down to Belize or how they can then start interpreting some of the talks that they'll hear downstairs and how that would relate, say, to their own research when they head on down to Belize a little later on in the year. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's definitely one of the most publicly engaged conferences that I've ever attended anywhere. I mean, not only do you have students who've had a you know, year-long course with Matt Saunders um, at Davidson Day on my archaeology and then have gone down to the field, but you actually have students who've been once, twice, three times or more um, yeah. down to Belize. And so you get to see the depth and the interest in their questions, you know, change over that time period as well. And then, of course, we have people that attend um, the conferences engaged with these high school students and engaged also with uh, professionals from across, um, you know, the U.S., the Europe, and, and into, um, of course, the Central American countries themselves. Um, you know, lifelong learners, people from their 30s up to their, to their 60s. Um, so it's, it's an incredible, you know, sort of um, profile, really, of everybody that's interested in, in my archaeology from all walks of life and all ages. Yeah. And like you had said, Mark, it's really amazing to see all the different kind of modes of knowledge and levels of knowledge and different approaches that people have and uh, the the kinds of conversations and kind of collaborations and sharing of information and ideas. It's just incredible at Maya at the Lago. Nice. Well, the next question is, how do you take notes and how did you learn the proper method as to how to take notes? This is a complicated question because, of course, note-taking strategy changes depending on what it is you're taking notes on, of course. So in field archaeology, a lot of that has come, as I was indicating earlier, um, from field programs and also from working on rescue archaeology projects yeah. um, that I've undertaken since so I have a very specific way that I organize those notes. And of course, that also adapts depending on the specific project I'm on. We fill out fact sheets and we have a kind of a note-taking strategy that we share with our colleagues and a certain order and organization that you want to put things in. And then, of course, you, know, you can apply some of those same strategies when you're taking notes in a class or when you're taking notes at a, at a lecture or at a talk. 
Um, and I guess, you know, as with so many things like this, you really learn by doing it. You know, my, the first notes I ever took were, were crap. They were useless, <laughs> even to me, as Stan was indicating. Yeah. Months later, trying to sort things out or putting things and realizing, oh my gosh, I, I should have dated that page. I should have made it clear under the conditions in which I took this. You know, this was speculation before I saw this other thing and I wrote it down as if it was, you know, the thing. So now I have very, very many complicated, you know, little strategies for note taking, including lots of abbreviations and codes I use that I've just used with myself for years. So I know how to expand those without difficulty. Um, but there are definitely some places where I think somebody else would have a hard time, you know, understanding my raw notes. Um, in fairness, I then transcribe those later into something that's a little bit more elaborate. Yeah. I've definitely found that that's the case with uh, me as well. And just practicing and practicing and going through the whole process of conducting field work and then doing the research and producing a report. You know, once you go through the whole process of archaeology and then you know writing about it that's when i find that i've either done a good job of taking notes or i really need to do a better job next time because when i when it comes time to write your report on you know a description of your work if you're looking at your own notes and you can't figure it out then you know like that's a lot of wasted time but you know now i know what i expect from myself you know and i know what i'm going to need later on so when i'm in the field i find that i'm writing you know basically a, a paragraph that i can copy almost word for word into my report later on because i know i'm yeah, going to need quite it right yeah, for me, uh, the only thing I would add, because I'm in complete agreement with everything both of you have said, is that when I'm taking notes now, I certainly include a lot more sketches, uh -huh. uh, sketches of the artifacts you're finding, sketches of the sure. area where you're working in, so that you can always orient where you were and what you were looking at when you're talking about everything else in there. Um, too often I would find looking at my earlier notes that you'd be talking about something and you'd say, oh, it was to the left of something and you don't know exactly what it is. So you want to be taking a lot of photographs, but I also always include sketches of whatever I'm looking at uh, because that in the process of, of making those sketches, you have to be able to figure out what you're looking at. And it forces you, I think, to be far more analytical in just looking at the, the materials that are right in front of your eyes and that otherwise you might, in fact, simply gloss over and not think are that problematic. You think you understand them, but when you put something down on paper, it, it becomes a lot more real to you, I think, in, in that way. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, Stan and I are both epigraphers as well, um, working with Maya hieroglyphic inscriptions. And, you know, you can get a kind of a, a familiarity with a text that you've seen many times. And, and you realize only when you really stop and look at it really closely, you realize something that you've seen a hundred times and just glossed over actually is the linchpin of something really, really important. And, it's, you know, your own familiarity is caught against you there. So going to the same site day after day or year after year, you can become kind of, you know, um, too familiar, you know, in, in a certain way. And when you sit down and have to really sketch something or describe something, you start to realize where it was you weren't paying enough attention before. And that oh, can yeah. be really, really invaluable. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Well, um, Mark, I know you've got some time constraints, so, uh, we'll let you duck out here and then, uh, Jordan's going to guide us through the, the rest of the show. Wonderful. Well, farewell. Thanks everybody for the lovely conversation. Yeah. Thanks for your right, time. Cheers. And, uh, we'll be thanks. in touch. Cheers. And so again, uh, I had mentioned briefly at the very start of this episode that uh, Jordan had sent these questions to me a few weeks ago, and um, it's part of 
a pretty interesting assignment that she's working on at University of Central Florida. Jordan, could you tell us a little bit about this assignment? Yeah, sure thing. So I am in an English composition two class, and we are focusing on literacy within a specific field that just pertains to you. And so being that I am an anthropology major, and I am really fascinated with the idea of anthropology and archaeology, I thought it'd be a really good idea to focus on literacy within the field of archaeology and how important field notes are pertaining to archaeology excavations and how we use them like after the fact that um, we've collected them all. That's really cool that it's not in a anthropology class. I I didn't realize that. Uh, so it, it's pretty neat that you get to already start working on some kind of interdisciplinary uh, research, as it were, in your English class. Thank you. It's um, a really lengthy process. I've been writing about my primary sources and secondary, and it's really great to have this interview with you guys because I'm actually able to take what I'm hearing today and put that into my paper as another sort of interview of sorts. So thank you so much. Awesome. Well, I'm glad that uh, my podcast is useful. Uh, <laughs> so uh, do you want to lead us through the rest of the questions? We were, um... Sure, um, I can take it from there. So how do you, um, you help those under you properly take notes? Like, do you read over them or do you read them out loud? How do you review over the notes? Well, uh, off at the FR program, when we're in Belize with students, we certainly do have a very strong component of our research out there is in helping the students learn to take notes and then learn to evaluate those notes. So at the end of every day's excavations, we will go over our notes with each other and that way the students can see what each other has been writing and then what, of course, their archeologist, uh, their team leader there, would be expecting them to have gotten out of the, the excavations that they had had that day. So you wanna figure out what are your overall research goals and then what are your specific research topics that you're looking at in your in your specific excavations and how well do your notes allow someone else someone from outside to be able to come on in and simply understand what you were doing and what kind of information you were getting out of there so yes um, reading over them and, and certainly reading out loud as well um, are components of what we do out there um, on some of the other projects I've worked at it's we don't have as many students and so it's a bit of a different system out there but certainly for our afar pro program um, that is one of the most important aspects of our research out at the site i personally find it very helpful when you guys look over my notes because then i know what i need to fix and what i need to improve on so i find that very helpful yeah definitely and i i guess just to add to stan's uh I don't like to read over notes, uh, but every now and then I, I will, uh, every, every few days or so, or, um, you know, if, if I can pull myself away from the excavation unit and just kind of, uh, flip through, uh, people's notebooks as they're busy excavating and screening for artifacts and whatnot, I'll do it just to make sure that they're catching like keywords and stuff, or, you know, like spelling words correctly, uh, especially if it's kind of technical jargon, those are the words that I feel like those are, they're, they're the most important to really drill home the key concepts of, you know, why we're doing things, what we're looking for, stuff like that. Um, but I definitely read them out loud. And I really, one of the methods that I like to do is before we even start excavations for the day, um, 
I'll have everybody just sit together and we'll talk our way through the notes and that way everybody's on the same page since we're kind of sitting around having a discussion about it. Um, and you never know, like somebody might notice something that others don't notice or somebody might have a question that, you know, we haven't thought of. So it, having a discussion about it and, you know, making sure that everybody's on the same page also lets us take into account, you know, different ideas and different approaches to knowledge. So at times we work with descendant communities, uh, especially in Belize, people who have uh, like an oral history of the Maya or people who have not necessarily uh, taken like an, an academic course on the Maya, but they've grown up with oral traditions and talking to archaeologists and anthropologists and also working on sites. You know, we, we hire uh, local workmen to, to help us with the excavations. And so their, I guess, mode of literacy is different than ours as people who have studied published research, peer-reviewed research, and, you know, gone to conferences and heard other presentations and stuff like that. But I'd feel that their knowledge and their literacy is just as integral to the field work. And so that's one of the challenges that we have is to accommodate and integrate their, their, their knowledge into what we're working with. And so a lot of their intimate knowledge with, um, the Maya shapes how we do our work in the field. Me personally, I like, well, I also agree with you in the fact that it's just by being open-minded, I've learned that when, by going down to Belize, like being open-minded and seeing more so just like, like I've just watched the interactions between, um, like as we've like traveled to um, like the different sites and things like that. It's just the fact that like, even though they aren't on the site with us and how they haven't really been through like the quote unquote school, they do know a lot about it. And I'm learning not only from the professors and from people who have studied my archeology, span but the people themselves. And I find that really interesting to see the two different perspectives and how we look at it in a scholarly context and how we also look at it in just a cultural context. Yeah. So the next question would be, um, what roles did you play during the excavation and in the lab? Okay, um, for myself, I've worked as both an archeologist and as an epigrapher. And so those involve uh, a few different things. Um, as an epigrapher, basically I'm looking at the monuments and so you'll be making, taking photographs, uh, making drawings, and then trying to interpret all of that. Uh, so a lot of that work ends up happening in the lab afterwards. So you don't make a lot of your final drawings, of course, in the field, you're gonna be taking sketches, you're just gonna be taking notes. Um, as an archeologist, I've certainly worked a lot more in the in the excavation area uh, because we have in our labs on, on some of the other projects I've worked on, we'll have specialists who will work with the artifacts themselves. So in terms of excavation, you're going to be having to first lay out your units. So you need to learn the, the basics of how to properly lay out a unit and then the actual excavations in Latin America, um, especially in Guatemala, where I've worked a lot, we actually, as the archaeologists, don't do a lot of the physical excavating. We have workmen who are going to be the, these local folks, many of whom often are Maya. They're speaking Maya languages, so it's a good opportunity to learn a lot about the, their languages, their, their culture and that, while you're actually carrying out excavations on 
the materials from, from their ancestors. So you're going to be excavating there. Your job as an archaeologist is mostly to take notes. So you're taking a lot of notes, especially down in my work in Guatemala. What we do in Belize is we work with the students. And of course, there it's basically the students are working as the archaeologists. And you need to be able to know, you need to have gone through that process of actually having dug in order to be able to work as I do in Guatemala, where you are supervising, because you need to be able to make certain that your workmen know what kind of things you want them to be paying attention to. So it's, uh, you need to have that hands-on experience as well as being able to step back and then be able to direct a larger number of people doing the exact same thing. So those are the kind of roles that I play off in the field. And then in the lab, of course, it's you're much more you are working on your own. So I've done a lot of work in terms of, of lab work, not so much in terms of doing the actual analysis of ceramics. For example, we have specialists, and Lord knows I am not a specialist in how to interpret old pottery shirts. I'm very thankful <laughs> that we have people crazy enough who want to do that for a living. Yeah. So we have our own specialists who will work with that. But you need to be in there along with them, at least for some part of that time, so that you can actually help them understand what, what it is they're looking at. So, for example, uh, one year I found a very large cache vessel. So this is a very large ceramic vessel that had some materials inside of it. That was found underneath an altar in front of a stella at the site of El Peru. And so our ceramicist had to reconstruct that. And what I found when I was excavating was just a pile of broken pottery shirts. When he put it back together, then I could actually look at that and interpret my own excavations now with his ceramic um, evidence in play. So it's, it was very important for me to have a good relationship with our experts in the, in the lab so that I could then integrate their interpretations with my own. Take a village. <laughs> Absolutely. <yep. laughs> yeah. And it's one of those cases where you can see specialization allows us to do so much more so that if all of us were doing the same thing, we would all be kind of um, jack of all trades, masters of none. And in this case, we can get a lot more specific information and a lot better work gets done when you have that kind of specialization. So if they would say find a bit of a monument, I could come in there and give them the information about, okay, this is a monument that dates to this time period, and thus they can use, say, that epigraphic date to help interpret, say, the ceramics that they're finding. Then we can use that in order to produce a, a better ceramic chronology, for example. So my specialty worked in conjunction with theirs, and that is, I think, one of the critical things, that if you are ever intending on doing your own archaeological project, what you want to find are a good group of people who will be able to work well together in the lab and in the field, and that who have complementary specializations. Absolutely. So I worked with you, Chris, I don't know how you want to call me Chris or Boone, but <laughs> um, uh, I know I worked with you for several years, but like, besides what I've seen out in the field, like what all do you do like when you're doing excavations and in the lab? Um, well, my role I'd say is, is kind of similar to uh, Stan's in that uh, when I'm actually on an, an excavation portion of a project, I tend to have more of a supervisory role. So um, especially this past year, I had made a very concentrated effort to dig less and take more and better notes. Uh, so 
uh, that was really, I'd say the, the bulk of my time on the site was spent uh, sitting near the unit, uh, answering questions, keeping my eyes peeled for anything of note, and you know, recording everything as much as I possibly could, drawing diagrams, taking photos, um, you know, and and just kind of helping direct uh, direct our efforts in the team. Um, and so uh, that being said, though, I usually don't have much time to be in the lab um since we do have specialists that that do that but once the whole project is wrapped up each field season uh my role with the lab is that i go through the artifact catalogs and i try and make some sense of what we recorded so you know like i guess to back up you know as you're familiar jordan at the end of each day, we're making sure that we have artifact cards and our bag inventories and our bag lists are done, but then, you know, everything gets processed and analyzed in the lab. And so the finished product is I get to look at these artifact catalogs that have all of this information in, you know, a coherent table. And so that's, that's part of the task of all of the stuff we do in the field is to produce something coherent and usable. Um, and so that then informs the report that we're writing so we can kind of refer back to you know what we found where we found it how deep we found it and start to describe associations with things uh, to start to put the story back together of what exactly all this human behavior was at you know like this past summer we were at a maya ball court so you know maybe mm -hmm. at some point we'll be able to figure out what on earth they were doing and when they were doing it Absolutely. Well, you guys kind of answered my next question about lab work and the whole process of um, cleaning and putting away and just kind of sorting um, the artifacts. But when you mentioned communication and how you kind of work together as a whole, how do you feel communication between your colleagues has helped you better your skills in the field? Uh, well, um, for me, as my role with Afar has changed throughout the years. And so I feel like when I first got involved, I was still very much an early career archeologist. And so uh, the communication I've had on projects um, has helped me grow as a professional, but it's also helped me do better work. So I've leaned on the expertise of people like Stan and Mark. And because of that, you know, I've been able to produce better work on each specific project I've done with them, but it's also helped me grow as an archeologist and kind of make that transition into what I guess I'm, I'm now like kind of a mid-career archeologist where I've taken on a lot more leadership roles and I've got a lot more responsibilities and stuff like that. Absolutely. What about you, Stan? Well, uh, I guess I'll say this is a little story about what can happen when you have bad communication. Uh, about a hundred years ago, there was a scholar who had carried out some research at the site of Tikal, and he was part of a team, but he had a falling out with, with the leaders. And so when he came out, 
he refused to give them his map that he had drawn because they had a conflict in terms of who was getting credit in, in what area. And ultimately, this project then had to send out an entirely different person to travel down to Guatemala from Europe. And you can imagine how difficult that would be back then just so that they could produce a map, so that they could put it in with the rest of the report that everybody else on the team had produced. So that is, would be one of these kind of nightmare scenarios for where you have miscommunication between colleagues. Um, and luckily, I've never been on a project that has had anything like that at all. Um, but it is the case that all of us have different uh, research interests. So for example, when I was working with the, the, the crew at, uh, in El Peru, we had our professor there, and then all the rest of us, um, as the major archaeologists, were grad students. And so each one of us was writing our own dissertations, and so each person has their own research interests and, and agendas. And what you have to do is not only carry out your research and your writings and your work in the lab in order to get the information you need, but you also have to consider everybody else on the project and so this is where the, the head of the, the project, the, the director of the project, is going to have to be able to try to juggle all of those different interests so you can get the most amount of information out of everybody without having to overburden certain people. So it's, it is a bit of a almost a, a kind of a fine art in terms of people managing, um, in addition to simply managing your own time and, and your own researches, you have to figure out how to be able to communicate between people who have very different research um, interests and agendas than your own. So communication always helps. And this is why when, especially with a lot of us, when you travel on out into the field, you're going to be living with these people together in very close quarters for extended periods of time. And what's interesting is a lot of those people will end up becoming like family with you so that over the years you will develop a camaraderie and it's, it's, a, it's a very nice thing when you can find a good group of people to work with. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, my final question, you guys have kind of gone over this also about the notes and how you put it into a report, but how do you organize them um, like particularly like like specifically to um, pertaining to you guys, but how would you organize them and where do they go afterwards? I know with the FAR they go to Jaime, but like what do you, what's like a typical like destination for your work? I know you both, um, I know um, Chris has worked with CRM, but like where have your notes really gone? Like how have they been used to help society and like the building and the development of history more so? Well, I know from the, the, the projects I work at, also in Guatemala, uh, where we have slightly different um, governmental regulations in terms of your notes, is that we have our notes that are separated out. We have uh, two sets of notes, one that will stay in Guatemala, another set that come back up here to the States to our, our main offices. And then the, the, the student or the individual archaeologist has to keep a record of his or her notes as well. So that we have at least three different levels there. And then finally, at the end of the season, you're going to use those notes in order to produce a field report. So the field report is basically a synthesization of your of all of your notes and you're going to be coming out with the the most pertinent finds that you've had so you're not going to be including all of your notes um, on that you're going to be bringing out just the, the most basic information but these aren't articles for publication but they are something you have to submit to the government so that the government has a record of what you excavated what you found and where so that they in case anyone else in the future comes along they can find out 
where has there been excavations in the past and what kind of things were found. So what we end up having to do with that, that is a requirement that is certainly the case in Guatemala and in Belize. And in fact, now I'm guessing that pretty much anywhere in the world, you're going to have a governmental organization that is going to insist upon a submission of that kind of a report at the end of any proper um, field research. So our notes are basically used in that manner um, in order to produce our report to the government. But then in the future, of course, we're going to be coming back as, for example, with the AFAR project, we've been working in Cajalpech now for uh, the better part of a decade. And so we have been excavating in many of the same locations or right next to them. And you want to have those kind of notes around so that they can work as a guide for you in your future excavations. So you're going to be coming back to those notes time and again. And so you're going to want to have a good location for them. So I know on the on the the fairs project that I work on, we have a couple of rooms in our office that are full of nothing but those notes. So we've been working for 30 years on that project, and that ends up being a ton of notes. So you have all the notes, and then you also have all the photographs. Luckily, today we have digital photographs that don't take up so much space, but in the past it was all on slides or, or just in, in print. And that would be a huge amount. And we still have an entire room in our office that is devoted to nothing but storing all of our, our old photographs. Absolutely. And I think that that's an important note on the subject of storage. That's one of the big struggles that uh, archaeology has throughout the world. But I've seen it on the CRM side in the States. A lot of states have a like state archaeological repository where they store all of the notes and so when you're done with a project typically you end up with a cardboard banker's box and all of these things are archived in you know on big metal shelves kind of like a, the final scene of uh indiana jones mm-hmm. um but you know it's it's a problem because it takes a lot of money and it takes a lot of space to store these things so Whatever the format is, you got to think about archiving information and making it retrievable. And um, as a quick little tangent, uh, I've recently become involved with a a nonprofit group called Codify, and they're working on a proprietary app for the iPad that will handle recording everything in the field from notes to photographs to... uh, you know, your excavation data and also like geo-referenced locations. So it'll also have, uh, you know, UTM coordinates and stuff like that all coordinated on mapping. And the goal of this project is to create uh, metadata that can tag everything together and make our, our, basically our notes more useful and take up less space and, you know, have a a better lasting archive for the future. And so we're working on, you know, stable formats to store things digitally and stable formats to retrieve this data across different platforms. So we've got to make it uh, cross compatible, whether you're using uh, Mac or uh, Microsoft Windows, stuff like that, and various other platforms. So that in itself, the the issue of of notes is something that I think is, you know, it's something that you could really dig into a lot uh, when it comes to how useful are notes. It's almost a science of note taking and a science of what what on earth do we do with all these notes. So I think that, you know, at its 
on the surface, taking notes is such a simple task, but it has such huge implications for, you know, as we've talked about throughout this show, for the quality of research we produce and then also the legacy that we're leaving for the rest of science. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, those are the rest of my questions. I don't know if you have anything else to add, but like that was really productive for me as somewhat of a outside looking in because I'm not, of course, a professional archaeologist, but I find it very helpful to hear both of your perspectives, just looking at the years of experience that you both have had. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Sure thing. Nice. Well, thanks for joining us on this episode, Jordan and Stan, and uh, look forward to working with you again uh, next summer and staying in touch. Sounds good. Thanks for having me.